is Sit Rep on VFBS with Kate Chabot. Who's going to tell the new Defence Secretary why the F-35 can't cross the Atlantic? Are the Israelis about to invade Gaza again? Why Russian spooks are heading for Cuba? And 40 years on, why did the Turks invade northern Cyprus? I ask the full cooperation of Greek and Turkish commanders and their troops in the execution of this purely humanitarian mission. A senior Israeli military figure has, according to the New York Times this morning, said that ground troops will inevitably go into Gaza. He goes on to say bombing attacks cannot achieve Israeli security. Well, Rosemary Hollis is Professor of Middle East Policy Studies at City University in London and BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee is here with me in the studio. Hello to both of you. Professor Hollis, what do we make of this? Well, it's been on again, off again for the entirety of this latest round of the conflict. And in reality, it seems, still seems very unlikely that troops would actually reinvade Gaza and try and take the place over. However, as the possibility of a negotiated ceasefire increases, with the Egyptians mediating and the Turks involved and Tony Blair on the scene and the Palestinian leadership in Ramallah also involved... It's quite likely that the Israelis, in order to demonstrate to themselves that they've achieved something with this round of conflict, may make some raids into Gaza on the ground and then get out again. Christopher, Hamas has lost allies in the Middle East. Why? Well, it's lost, it's lost them first and foremost because, for example, Iran is a strong ally and Syria is a strong ally, and yet uh, Hamas was uh, supporting the, um, the uh, Sunni rebels against Assad uh, in Syria. And that doesn't pl uh, please, obviously, Syria. And it certainly doesn't uh, please uh, Iran, who was supporting Assad in Syria. So that's one of the problems. But it's, it's released to some extent because they were getting weapons from those two places. Now, when they, this thing started this time, I suppose the... Hamas might have had some like nine, ten thousand of those rockets that they're firing. By a rough count, they've only used about one thousand. So there's there's still in there's still in still in the black on, on that. But the, the important thing is the support that they would have got from Syria and from uh, and from Iran. So Professor Hollis, you said you you think there may be some Israeli raids on Gaza. What will the effect of those raids be? Well, they need to prove that they've done something more significant than every other time this kind of spat breaks out between the Israelis and Hamas. But there's another way of understanding this whole situation. The Palestinian leadership has been split between the Fatah leadership based in the West Bank, which has the blessing of the international community as the future of Palestine, and Hamas in control of the Gaza Strip. And with a series of events, including the replacement of Mohammed Morsi, the Muslim Brotherhood leader in Egypt, and the arrival of um, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi as the new president in Egypt, Hamas's situation has become dire in the Gaza Strip because the Egyptians have clamped down on the border crossings and closed a lot of the tunnels through which they used to smuggle whatever they could get. And in a sense, you could see Hamas 
now as effectively fighting back to reassert its role in the future of the Palestinians and saying they're not going to go quietly. And on the Israeli side, this conflict in a way suits hardliners who resisted all the efforts of the U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry earlier in the year to try and get them to agree with the more moderate Palestinian leadership on the West Bank mm. a, a two-state solution to the conflict. Christopher. Just, can I just put one military uh, aspect of this? Um, we look at the newsreels and we understand the, America, the Israeli superiority as far as bombing is concerned. You cannot destroy all your targets simply by bombing. And most people think you probably can, but you cannot do that. It comes a point, rather like the shock and awe uh, sort of intervention by the Americans in Iraq, comes a point when you've got bo bo boots on the ground. And that, I think, is behind the, uh, the Israeli... A government official who's talking in this way that it, unless we clear this up intervention is very very likely he may just be trying to scare Hamas uh, mm. uh, uh, of course but it is a military point. Professor Hollis at one time it was said that if you fix the Israeli-Palestinian problem then the rest of the Middle East would fall into place is that still true? Well it was never 100% true really because there are so many other issues in conflict in the region as we're witnessing in the meltdown in Iraq and Syria and the involvement of the other regional players and the international players on uh, different sides in those two contexts. But nonetheless, there will never be a peaceful Middle East overall until something is done about this Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And one of the reasons why it's so intractable is that the Palestinians are claiming the very same land, at the very least the land occupied by Israel, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank in 1967, and many of them much more than that, i.e. the land that, on which Israel was established in 1948. And we've had increasingly hardline Israeli governments who not only are brooking absolutely no compromise on uh, the 48 lines, but have annexed East Jerusalem. They're not letting go of that. And they are increasing the number of Israeli settlers in the West Bank, which is a very strong message that they don't want to see a Palestinian state there instead. All right. Rosemary Hollis, Professor of Middle East Policy Studies at City University. Thanks for your time today. Sit Rep with Kate Chabot. Still to come, Cyprus 40 years on from the invasion which divided the island. And is Russian intelligence back in Cuba? General Lord Dannett, when he retired as Chief of the General Staff, was sent to the House of Lords and the Tower of London, but he's still a very sharp voice in the defence debate. I've been talking to him this week particularly about Western intervention. What do I think about Afghanistan and Iraq? Well, I think I've made my views pretty plain in the past. Afghanistan, there was no question after 9-11 um, that we had to go into Afghanistan. Um, the Taliban was providing shelter and safe haven to al-Qaeda, and it was from Afghanistan, their training bases in Afghanistan, that the attacks on 9-11 and earlier attacks um, in the year or two before that uh, had been mounted from. So absolutely the right thing to do. I think many people now recognise, with hindsight, that the decision then to go into Iraq in early 2003 
was probably a strategic error of some considerable size. Because had we concentrated our efforts in Afghanistan from 2001 through 23456, I think we could have consolidated that country much more quickly, not allowed the Taliban the chance to regroup. Um, and I think we probably could have withdrawn from Afghanistan by 2006, 2008. You know, who knows? But I think the balance of probabilities is that could have been the case. But because, for one reason or another, we went into Iraq in 2003, that's where the Americans and our main efforts switched to. And Afghanistan became a sort of second-order issue. It did allow the Taliban to regroup. So when we mounted a, a new big operation in southern Afghanistan from 2006 we had a much bigger problem on our hands. And it meant for the period that I was Chief of the General Staff, 2006 to 2009, the army was committed in a major operation in Iraq and a major operation in Afghanistan. We were actually only organised and equipped, really, for one of those, but we managed to do two. And it put us under a tremendous amount of pressure. What were you saying to the government of the day behind closed doors? Behind closed doors and actually um, in front of closed doors at times, um, I made it quite clear that, that my view was that we were struggling to do both. We could do both just, but that we needed to get out of Iraq sometime soon, and I used that phrase publicly, um, not because what we were doing in Iraq was wrong and was not going to work, but actually we needed to focus on Afghanistan, which was actually much, much more important. And, and eventually, I think that point of view prevailed. We left Iraq at the end of 2009. Both America and the UK concentrated much more on Afghanistan. And let's hope and pray that over the next few years, Afghanistan remains as stable as it is now. I think the Taliban aren't finished, and they may have some role to play in the south of the country. But I think we've given them, the Afghans, the chance to lead a more stable life, and I hope they take that chance. When he was still Defence Secretary, Philip Hammond has said that there does not need to be a fundamental rethink on strategy in spite of the new threats facing the world. What do you think? Um, it's a big call to say we don't need a fundamental rethink. I mean, I think the world is in a very difficult set of circumstances at the present moment. I think the biggest challenge, and I think, if we're being honest, I think intellectually it's quite difficult to get our head around the current challenge, which is how do we... Um, interact with what's going on in the Middle East currently, the struggle within Islam, essentially between Sunni and Shia elements of Islam. And a bit like the English Civil War in the 17th century, that was our nation tearing itself apart, trying to work out a path for the future. It happened in the 18th century in, in, in France, the sort of French Revolution. And I think there's, there is undoubtedly a battle going on within Islam for control of the future direction of Islam at the present moment. Um, that is their business and not our business. And if we've learned anything from Iraq and Afghanistan over the last 10, 12 years, is that when we take our Judeo-Christian boots and put them on Muslim soil, we have gone there with all the best of intentions to help. But actually our presence quite quickly becomes part of the problem and less of the solution. So when we look at the terrible suffering that's going on in Syria and parts of Iraq at the present moment. Our natural instinct, because we see it on our television screens, is we've got to do something. You know, the media is greater. The something must be done lobby. But we have to be very careful and very nuanced about what that is. And I think we've learned that any kind of intervention by ourselves would be wrong. But then humanitarian aid on its own is quite a thin response and quite difficult to deliver. So there is a real challenge at the present moment, and I think people are working very hard to get their heads around it.
That was General Lord Dannett speaking to me this week. And I said he was sent to the Tower of London because he's now the constable of the Tower of London, isn't he? Not for any other reason, of course. Nice little number. Lives in a haunted house. Yeah, very much so, yes. Uh, Christopher, um, talking about the best intentions on intervention, uh, case in point, Libya. Libya's going sour. In fact, it's never been sweet after, after, after the, uh, the, the coup d'etat. Um, it was one of those areas where, because of the experience of Iraq and Afghanistan, the British and the Americans especially said, listen, we do not get involved. And yet we did get involved. In, in some ways, we had a ship standing off. HMS Liverpool was standing off uh, Libya to bring people out to help with communications, etc. We also put special forces in there. But we did not do the big boots thing. And, and that's gone wonky and there's been about three attempts at a, coup, a, a new coup d'etat since. And by some of the very rebels who were helped? Some of the rebels that were helped, and others, uh, in, including which are the mercenary rebels, the Turak, they went further down into Africa and causing more trouble in that, and we would have been involved in that end. So that's a perfect example if you're sitting in the Foreign Office saying, we don't go in, but we stand off and give help where we can. OK, let's talk about uh, Parliament's Day, because uh, Michael Fa Fallon is the new Defence Secretary. So what do we know about it, and what difference will he make at the MOD? Uh, so, Christopher, what do you think? Well, uh, one of the things that you've got to do with a new Defence Secretary, if you're in the service, you say, is this guy going to be better for us, or worse for us, or is it all about the same? And I think at the moment what they're going to be saying, he's going to be reasonably good for us, because he, he is a businessman. He, was in, he had a brief in the Department of Energy, but also in, in, in business. Um, he is the sort of character, apparently, who can handle the Treasury. He's used to handling the Treasury. And at the moment, at the moment, that's what they need. But, and here is the big issue. I was told this morning, early this morning, that he went into the office. First thing he said to his gathered uh, people, what's this F-35B thing? You know, why can't it fly across the Atlantic? What's the problem? We're supposed to be having this airplane. We've spent billions on it. What's wrong with it? And what's the F-18? The Super F-18? Because the Super F-18 was one of the things that somebody says, the cheap option, have that, and then get the F-35 when it's ready. You, you better but, answer his questions, Christopher. Okay, Maybe he's listening. OK, because he has got to go into Parliament... And he's got to... First thing he's going to have to explain to uh, House of Commons Defence Committee and also uh, Parliament in general, why is it that we spent so many hundreds of billions of pounds on something which only, f only can fly a certain time or a certain distance, like the F-35B at the moment, a couple of thousand miles before you have to take the front, front end, off, end off and see if the filters are working? Now, the, the Atlantic is three and a half thousand miles, hmm. so we can get it more than halfway, but that's not good enough. And those are the sort of practical questions, and that's when you see if your Defence Secretary is any good, when it gets before the uh, committees and in Parliament, you say, yeah, he's very good. What, what David Owen used to call, is he good in bed? If he isn't, that's the political bed. If he's good in <laughs> political bed, then he's on our side. Uh, you mentioned uh, he should be good at handling the Treasury, but he did have a little bit of a problem with his own parliamentary expenses. What happened? That was a tricky one, wasn't it? Do you remember all these characters were sort of uh, saying, well, you're allowed to uh, claim for the for the um, what was it, the interest on your mortgage? Um, you know, if you've got to have two houses, he, he although did, he only lives just outside London, he, he lives down at. He uh, did in a little bit more, is that right? He did a bit more, and he said, "Why didn't anybody tell me?" Mm. Um, and then they said, "They said, well, look, you don't have to pay it all back, Michael. Don't worry about that. You know, we'll take it off your because expenses, he could offset it, offset it against your allowances." I reckon it's good training for a man who's got to hack off the tre treasury, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but this job itself, much higher profile than anything else he's done much higher profile um, 
enormous profile, but I'll tell you one thing that's interesting. Defence Defence Ministry about the third highest spender in, in Whitehall. Um, out of the 25, 27 cabinet ministers, he rates maybe 14, that's all. It's an interesting thing that mm. because of the, the long-term issues of, of defence, it ain't hospitals. You don't have to know if your kids are getting through the right school. And that's... A, it, he's probably the right person for the job and he'll have the job for, what, nine months, that's all. This is BFBS. Sit rep. If you were a serviceman based in Cyprus 40 years ago and listening to BFBS, you might have heard something like this. I now introduce the commander, British Forces Near East, Air Marshal Sir John Aiken. To those who are listening to me, I will once again identify myself. I am Air Marshal Sir John Aiken, Royal Air Force, Commander British Forces Near East and Administrator of the British Sovereign Base Areas. I now have working with me at Episcopi here in Cyprus, a Minister of the British Government. At the request and with the advice of the British High Commissioner Nicosia, in conjunction with the Ambassador of the United States of America and other associated nations, I am sending a convoy of vehicles to Nicosia. Its destination is a place they recommend as one which is safe from fighting at this time. Its purpose is solely that of saving life and evacuating to the British sovereign base areas innocent people who find themselves in dangerous circumstances in Nicosia. I now address the Turkish and Greek commanders in Cyprus. The convoy will be clearly marked with the British flag, the Union Jack, a form of recognition you have come to accept during the past seven tragic days. Thus, its identity will be unmistakable. It will be escorted by military vehicles similarly marked. My orders are that troops will not fire except in self-defense. I ask the full cooperation of Greek and Turkish commanders and their troops in the execution of this purely humanitarian mission. That was Air Marshal Sir John Aitken, introduced by BFBS presenter Jim Luxton, making an emergency announcement following the Turkish intervention that took place in northern Cyprus 40 years ago this week. Christopher, just give us a brief, if possible, history lesson here. What were the events that led up to that? The uh, Greece and Turkey have always claimed the influence on, on, on Cyprus, yes. In '74, the Greek Cypriots, they had a coup. And the idea was to link with, with, with Greece itself. The Turks said, no, 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 you can't do that. And so they, some say, just in, arrived, others say intervened, others say invaded, because they did an airdrop over northern Cyprus supported by naval gunfire off the coast. And there you had the beginning of the division of the island with the Turks in the north and the, and the Greek Cypriots in the south. And that has been the situation ever since. Uh, BFBS reporter Carla Prater joins us from our studio in Akrotiri. Hello, Carla. H how are these events Hello. viewed on the island? Well, here we are 40 years on. Um, the fact it's 40 years actually bears little significance. It could be 35, 39, 41. This is an ongoing problem, and this year is no different. But the way the events of 1974 are viewed does vary either side of the island. The Greek Cypriots in the south view the arrival of Turkish forces in 1974 as an invasion. The fact they are still here in their eyes is an illegal occupation and they object to Turkey's presence. But in the north, the events 
are seen very differently. To them, it was a peace operation. In their eyes, Turkey was only doing what it needed to to protect the Turkish Cypriot community. Now, the UN, who work with both sides, describe what happened as the Turkish intervention. They use that word very carefully. They patrol the buffer zone, which lies in between the two communities. It's about three metres wide in the centre of Nicosia and seven kilometres wide in other parts. And it runs right across the island, 180 kilometres long. The Irish Guards are currently deployed there as peacekeepers in the capital. And it's their job to stay neutral to make sure no one flouts the rules. The key thing to remember here is that while both sides view the events differently, there is one commonality, and that's the fact that the upheaval affected everyone in some way. Over 200,000 people were displaced, becoming refugees. People fled their homes, people were kidnapped from their villages, others killed on both sides. Carla, you said that they're there to sort of make sure that no one flouts the rules. Does that kind of thing happen very often? Um, it does in small scales. There's um, some smaller things like sort of whether or not you can farm in certain areas. Permits need to be up to date. Some people try to build on certain areas. And that all needs to be go going through the, the UN if it's within that buffer zone. Um, on the whole, though, you know, these these are very small scale level things. It's not a big drama for the, for the United Nations over here. But there are lots of things to monitor. And it's all minutiae, all smaller details on the whole. So how is the anniversary being marked on the island? Well, in the north of the island, the 20th of July is called Peace and Freedom Day. This year they'll be having the Turkish Red Stars, who are their version of the Red Arrows in some ways, flying overhead. There's music, fireworks, doves flying. And in the past, there's been a dawn gathering to mark the beach landing near Kyrenia. But in the south, there is no celebration. This is a day to remember those who fought and died and were lost in the fighting. All week, the president, Nikos Anastasiadis, has been attending services. Uh, on Tuesday, the House of Representatives held a special session of parliament for what they call the black anniversaries of the coup and invasion. On Saturday, relatives of the missing will be holding a village service in Kornos. And on Sunday morning, there's a memorial service at the National Cemetery and an event at the Presidential Palace. Two very different ways of marking it. So in terms of the politics, where are we at the moment with the negotiations between the two sides? Well, it was the 11th of February when the, the two leaders first resumed their talks this year and they put forward their joint statement. Since then, they've been meeting regularly. Um, their negotiators have already been to Ankara and Athens. And in May, Joe Biden, the US Vice President, met both leaders in an effort to sort of speed up the talks. They've since been meeting twice a month. Their most recent meeting was on the 7th of July. At this stage, the discussions have really been focused on setting up technical committees, setting out confidence-building measures, and basically how to proceed with the talks. It's a very slow and complicated process. In the press this week, the Turkish Cypriots are said to have been in favour of a referendum this year, but this has not really been mentioned by the Greek Cypriot side. The big task the leaders really face is to push forward and overcome the big stumbling blocks like territory and security, which have caused deadlock so many times before. Christopher, do, do you think those big stumbling blocks can ever be overcome in Cyprus and the, and the island be unified? Um, I mean, that's the theory, because that's why everybody's... You know, everybody's working. The things to remember: um, Cyprus itself is an extraordinarily important military establishment, um, and you've only got to look what's happening in the Middle East now and see how much flying, how much um, electronic intelligence is gathered from Cyprus itself. And also remember that the Turks who are there, Turkey is part of NATO, and so there is a partnership. Also, uh, Cyprus could 
could remain a stumbling block. It's always been a bit of a stumbling block. It can remain a stumbling block for Turkey's serious desire, if it exists still, to join the EU, uh, because it cannot do that all until there is a solution in Cyprus. So it's 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 one of the reasons that everybody, including the American vice president, is working hard to try and fix it, fix it. But at the moment, I have to say, in spite of the meetings, there's no sign of any fixing. All right. And Carla Prato in Cyprus, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, Christopher, before before we go this week, let's have a look around the world and see what else is going on. And, and Northern Ireland, part of the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland was that more than 100 suspects of terrorism were given written promises from the government that they would not be prosecuted, including the man allegedly involved, involved in the Hyde Park bombing in which four British soldiers died. Where have we got with this? today, what's happening? Yes, those soldiers, Lieutenant Anthony Daly and the troopers Simon Tipper, Lance Corporal, uh, Geoffrey Young and Corporal Roy Bright are remembered on a day like this when people say it's not fair. And one of the reasons that they're angry, still, and anger is the right term, is because the man that was alleged to have been involved in that got off early this year because he then produced one of these letters that the government had given him and saying, you'll not be prosecuted. Now, where we've got now is there's been a legal inquiry by uh, Lady Justice Hallett. And she is saying, yes, uh, we can understand the background to this. And one of the parts of the background was that the agreement, finally agreement, some people were let out of prison. So others said, hang on, you know, you're, you're, you're after nicking us, uh, will we go to prison? Mm-hmm. And that's when these sort of... Uh, letters letters but mm. she is saying that if the police find enough information... To prosecute you, you will still be prosecuted. Interesting development. Uh, let's talk about what's happened in the Netherlands because the Dutch court has ruled that the peacekeeping unit during the Bosnian War was guilty of the deaths of 300 Bosnians because they did not give them shelter and the men were assassinated in Srebrenica in July 1995. Yeah, um, this was the peacekeeping operation by the Netherlands. Uh, the Dutch uh, soldiers, Dutch Bat, as it was called, um, they went in for a lot of uh, criticism because they did not defend these people that were being taken away. Does it have away. implications? Now, the implications can be for any peacekeeping operation, can't it? That depending upon your terms of reference, and you've got to, you've got to have very clear terms of reference of what you can do and what you can't do. Are you there to protect people, like bring them into an enclave? Or are you there to just sort of fire, if fired upon? What is your actual role? And there's a lot of work going on in the United Nations at the moment, and this is part of it, which is the Dutch court has produced 500. Um, 500 people maybe have something to answer. Um, but if they don't, uh, then the United Nations have got to think again how they're trying to revise the terms of reference for peacekeeping. A quick one on Cuba, if it's possible. Hey, yes. Uh, Putin um, Putin has really poked off about what's been happening in sort of Ukraine and as much the Americans have been moving further and further east. Has got a deal going with, uh, with Castro, the, the, the Cuban leader. He's going to set up another, because they used to have one, another intelligence gathering, electronic intelligence gathering operation just outside of, uh, of, uh, of Havana. Now, that is only about 100 miles from... Uh, that's, that's a definite, is it? Uh, that's what I'm told. It's an absolute definite. They're <laughs> going to be there and they're going to start pulling people in to do a recce on it within the month. Now, can you imagine Obama sitting there in the Oval Office? They said, they're doing what? <laughs> yeah. They are doing what? This is, and, and this is exactly what they did after the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. 
back mm. in the 1960s. Um, let's talk about what you did this morning. You went to this conference at the Royal United Services Institute. Um, what happened and who was there? It was World War. It was World War One conference. It's a whole a whole series of things that are going to be taking place on discussing, you know, how the World War One started. Should it be, what was it? What was run like? Were, were the forces right? Did we have enough forces? Should we have had more divisions there, etc. But just in the middle of it, I'd hardly spoken, actually. That's unusual. True. <laughs> uh, the alarm went off. The fire alarm went off. Mm-hmm. And um, we all It was had a genuine, to... was it? Or I hope Bruce has not gen- gone up in flames. It was... A, it was I and hear a fire alarm. Sometimes. It is always genuine. I'm off like a flash of camel dung. No, <laughs> um, no but there were, there were a load of VIPs. The whole the general staff were there. Mm. I imagine a fire caught in the whole of general staff. They were off. They were off very speedy. I was rather good. They'd done, obviously done their fitness test. And a couple of royals were there. And I said, look, if you go around the corner this way, instead of trying to go out the A couple of royals? Door, You're not mentioning names, then? Well, well the, the, the Duke of Kent was there, because he's president of the RUSI. And, um, Did you show him the, the fire exit, then? No, I, uh, I suggested to the mind of the other, of the uh, uh, Harry Wales was there as well. Mm. So, uh, out in the back garden, actually. Mm. Quick fag, end of conference. <laughs> Christopher, just briefly, what to look forward to next week? Oh, I think I think it's got to be Gaza. Do the Israelis go in? Mm. Is the bombing being sufficient for them? And if they do, we're in for weeks, maybe months, of proper war and more misery in the Gaza. Well, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can join us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. We're back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. And bye-bye for now. Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.